0: Last week, we continued the discussion of the refrain that appears after each of the meditation instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta. And we looked at the line mindfulness established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. Tonight, I'd like to explore the meaning finally of the last line of the refrain, and it's a very interesting line because it unifies both the practice and the goal of meditation. We see that in one sense, the practice is the goal. The line says, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This line really encapsulates the entire spiritual path. Now, abiding independent refers to the mind not being dependent on any arising experience through either craving or through views. Craving or desire are the usual translations of the Pali word, tanha. But it's also sometimes translated in another way, which for me has somewhat more power. That is, it's translated often as thirst, because thirst somehow suggests a more embodied urgency to this powerful state of mind. Craving or desire is not simply a mental activity. When it's strong and when we are really feeling it as thirst, (coughs) we see how it can consume our entire being. So the Buddha spoke of three kinds of thirst, three kinds of craving. We need to look carefully To see how they manifest, how they keep us in a continuous state of dependency, both in our practice and in our lives. So, the first kind of thirst is probably the one we're most familiar with, and that is the thirst or desire for sense pleasures, having pleasant feelings at each of the six sense doors. And this thirst can arise in a wide range of intensities and frequencies. There can be the thirst of an obsessive passion which totally consumes our lives. You know, when we become familiar with some of the world's great literature, much of it is a literature about this kind of consuming passion. You know, stretching all the way back to the Iliad of Homer, you know, or King Lear, or Anna Karenina, or there are endless novels and works of literature that are talking about both the passion and the consequences of it. We begin to see how individuals and sometimes entire nations come under the sway of this overwhelming thirst or desire. We can often see it playing out in national politics. It's this force in the mind with tremendous consequences for people. We can see it in crimes of passion, you know, which we read about in newspapers. And Sometimes it's quite amazing, the stories of people killing their spouses or even their children Out of the desire to be with someone they desire. The force can be so strong. There's the thirst of more ordinary, although equally strong, addictive cravings. You know, the cravings for food, for alcohol, for sex, for drugs, (laughs) for success, for power, for wealth. This is a thirst in the mind. There was a advertisement some years ago. I think it was actually for some cigarette, and it showed this very beautiful couple. You know, in front of all the kind of pleasures of life and you know, all the things, and, and the caption in the ad was, "I don't let anything stand in the way of my pleasure." You know, and that's the force. That's this force or craving in the mind. We don't let anything stand in the way of our pleasure. Or in meditation, lest you think that this force has been banished from the forest refuge. You know, we get caught up in repetitive fantasies you know, about many things. Even though we know that, at least in this context, they're dead ends. They're not going anyplace, at least not here. Or they might simply be the thoughts, the passing thoughts of wanting, not even if they're repetitive, the repetitive fantasies we get lost in, but just passing thoughts of wanting that take us out of the natural openness and ease of mind. When we become entranced by the object of wanting, whatever it may be, then we become identified with the force of desire, with the force of longing. And we no longer see the true nature of phenomena, We're no longer resting in the bare knowing. And in so many ways, our society and culture feeds and fosters this kind of craving. I've seen countless ads in newspapers and magazines and on email spam that in one way or another is saying, and sometimes quite literally saying, increase your desire as if this is a good thing to do. you know, And then it lists all the ways that we can increase our desire. This is quite different. This is quite a different message, quite different advice, certainly than in the Buddha's teachings, and specifically in a teaching that Sariputta, the chief disciple of the Buddha, gave to Anattapindaka, who was the chief Male lay supporter of the Buddha. This is Sariputta teaching Anathapindika as he lay dying. And afterwards, Anathapindika commented how this was a teaching that usually was reserved for monastics, and he was so appreciative that Sariputta had given it to him as a lay person, because it's really the teaching of liberation. He said, householder, talking to Anattapindaka, you should train thus. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought after and examined by the mind. And my consciousness will not be dependent on that. So the message is very clear and simple. Of course, as we know, it's not easy to do, but it's not complicated. We might also see desire to hold on to meditative states. And I think this comes up quite frequently in the course of our practice. either holding on to a state of peace or calm or concentration that may have arisen, we hold, hold on to it in some way, cling to it, or we long for one that has, we have experienced and has passed away, longing for it to come back. It's another kind of craving, another aspect of this thirst. Sometimes we see the depth and intensity of craving in the very smallest things. And for me, it's in these small things that illuminate the power of this conditioning within us. I remember once in particular, although it's happened many times, but once on retreat, I was just sitting and walking. And during a walking time, I just had the thought, oh, I'd like a cup of tea, and I just noted it, and the thought went away, and then about five steps later, the thought came back again, oh, I'd like a cup of tea, and I noted it, and it went away, and five steps, ten steps later, the thought came again, I noted it, it went away. This went on for some time, and then one time it arose, and there I was, off for the cup of tea. And it felt like this desire was just lurking inside this craving, just waiting for a moment when I wasn't right on top of it. And it just interested me that, and it was only a cup of tea, what was the power behind it? But it's a strong habituated tendency. Or maybe you're doing the walking meditation and out of the corner of your eye somebody's walking by. Have you ever had the urge or followed the urge just to, okay, look up, glance, who was that? Why, what difference does it make? And yet this force of the wanting can become very strong. Or another example that has been very illuminating to me. Sometimes in sitting with the eyes open Maybe not in the hall, but you know, sitting around when we're looking outside. Have you had the experience at all of perhaps you know, just seeing a bird pass by? Just a crossing our field of vision. And the strong tendency of the mind to follow the course of it with our eyes. Instead of simply just resting in the seeing, letting that sight arise and pass without the following. It's just another kind of desire, it's just another kind of craving for something so small. And yet it's very difficult to do. It's very difficult not to follow it. Often these patterns, these very simple patterns, and there are many other examples, are so familiar to us. They're so ordinary, they're so much a part of who we take ourselves to be that they remain invisible until we focus our attention, focus our mindfulness on them. The Buddha spoke very directly and incisively about the radically free nature of abiding, independent not clinging to anything in the world. This is not, what to say, it's not a half-hearted measure. This is a radical break with how we usually are. So this is what, what he said, that one should make an end to suffering without abandoning the underlying tendencies of desire for pleasant feelings, aversion towards unpleasant ones, and ignorance toward neutral ones, this is impossible. That one should make an end to suffering by abandoning these tendencies, this is possible. So although we may still have a bit of work to do, in abandoning these tendencies, these underlying tendencies of going for the pleasant, avoiding the unpleasant, remaining unaware of the neutral, it's still possible to make this radical shift of relationship in any single moment, in any moment it's possible. And. There's a little Vipassana mantra which I use, which is a reminder that it's possible in any moment. The mantra is, it doesn't matter to what we don't cling. Which means that we don't have to wait for some future realization. We don't have to wait for some future concentrated mind state. We don't have to wait for some future special experience not to cling. We can actually not cling now with whatever is arising, with whatever is happening. This is our practice now, not in the future. So this is the first kind of thirst, the first kind of craving that keeps us dependent. It's the thirst for all of these different manifestations of craving for sense pleasure. The second kind of craving actually goes deeper, and that is the thirst that there is in the mind for continued existence. So this gets very primal. You know, in Buddhist cultures, it often takes the form popularly of desire for rebirth in the deva realms. You know, it's continued existence, but in a particularly nice place. But I think there's a much more immediate experience of this thirst for continued existence that we can see very clearly in our own meditation practice. And that is the desire and clinging to this unfolding process itself. Have you noticed how often the mind leans into the next moment of experience? As if somehow the next breath, or the next sensation, or the next moment will resolve everything for us, but the next moment will bring us to completion instead of this one. This sense, and it's really an energetic leaning into the next moment, the sense of being pulled forward into the next moment of existence is what the Buddha called the process of becoming. So even as we use different objects of experience as ways of developing mindfulness and concentration, we need to remind ourselves repeatedly that the process of liberation is about not holding on rather than about getting. We're not sitting here in order to get something. We're practicing the not holding on to whatever is arising. Ramana Maharshi, the great Indian sage, he expressed it very beautifully. He said, try to be less, not more. And that really suggests the attitude of letting go. Try to be less, not more. We can see this thirst for existence, this thirst for continued existence, in some very ordinary mind states. And it's helpful to really look into them because it's rooted in this very powerful kind of craving. We see this thirst for continued existence in the repetitiveness of the planning mind, this imagining ourselves over and over again in some future situation. Now can we notice how often the mind gets lost in these mind-created worlds of future self? Now I will be this. I will do that. The planning mind is so rampant. But really, it's the ultimate form of cloning. Now it's just replicating the I in the future. We replicate the sense of ourselves endlessly. But somehow there's no ethics board in our minds, which is saying this isn't a good idea. Seeing plans or thoughts in the moment is not a problem. Planning is a fine thing to do when it's necessary to do, but when we get caught up in it, when we get lost in it, then it simply strengthens this sense, this process of becoming. We can see the thirst for existence, this craving for continued existence, in the form of expectations, the desire for something else to be happening. It's very helpful and valuable to pay careful attention to the arising of expectation because when we don't, it simply brings about a lot of agitation and disappointment in the mind. It locks us into the cycle of hope and fear, hope that something will happen, fear that it won't happen. Expectation takes us out of being in the moment and it is a setup for suffering. On my last retreat here, sat for a month in February. And I came in the last day of the retreat, the last morning, to the uh, early morning sitting you know, where we do the metta chant at the end. And during that whole month, uh, I, was, I was coming into that sitting and had really gotten into the beauty of doing the metta chant. And it would, we would be doing it at that time just as the sun was coming up out of these, Easter, uh, coming up out of these east windows, and it was, just, it was such an exquisite moment. So this is the last day of the month retreat, I come into that sitting, and I had a wonderful sit. It was it was like the deepest sit of the whole month, and it just felt like my heart opened to a whole different place of understanding. and. Of course, you never know whether we go out of a retreat on a high or a low or a good sitting or a difficult sitting, but this time it was just this wonderful sitting, and I had the thought, oh, this is great, and I'll just end it with this metta chant, and it will be the perfect end, you know, to this perfect sitting. So I'm just there kind of in this wonderful state, and the sun's coming up, and we start the metta chant, and somebody starts joining in the chant, completely out of rhythm. And the only thought that was going through, how can they ruin my perfect sitting? (laughs) This was the final culminating moment of this whole retreat. May all beings be happy, (laughs) be peaceful. How can they ruin my sitting? (laughs) it was so striking and also so humorous. It illuminated, for me, very clearly, the difference between expectation and aspiration. It illuminated the expectation that I hadn't even realized was there, you know, of how I wanted the sitting to be, how I wanted the sitting to end, how I wanted the retreat to end. And of course, when it didn't quite work out that way, it created, at least momentarily, that, that agitation. But expectation and aspiration are two very different things. Because we can practice opening to each moment of this unfolding process without leaning into the next moment, without expectation. So we're in the moment without expectation, yet still beholding it with a powerful aspiration for the goal, the goal of freedom, the goal of not holding on, the goal of letting go. And right in this, there's an interesting merging of two models or descriptions of practice. One model is that which many of you are familiar with, you know, of working through progressively the stages of insight, progress of insight model, right up to the final goal of Nibbana. And the other model of practice is that of understanding that the nature of the mind is already pure and complete, and that we simply need to abide in this empty, open awareness. Now what I found through practicing with each of these different models or each of these different descriptions of the practice, one is this progressive development through stages, one is just abiding in the naturally open and pure state of awareness, what I found is that the stage model ends up simply resting in awareness. That's what happens as we progress through the stages. And in the model of pure awareness, what I found was that the mind-body simply resting in the awareness, the mind-body goes through all the experiences of the stages of insight. And so rather than see them as two different things, they're simply different ways of describing the same process. And we can use each of these descriptions, each of these different models, as a skillful means, and in some ways as correctives for each other. Because if we're caught up in striving and expectation, if we notice that in our practice, a very useful mantra to employ at that time, and one which has helped me a lot in my practice. The mantra is, it's already here, or already aware. It's not something to get, it's not something to look for, it's not something I need to expect or want. It's already here. The mind is already aware. And just in that moment, of reminding myself of that can feel the letting go, can feel the relaxing back into the moment, into the ease of non-clinging. On the other hand, if we're just cruising along, more or less abiding in awareness, but really without precision, and maybe with questionable continuity, then periods of active mental noting can reconnect us with the unfolding process of the stages of insight. And so the two really support and serve one another. And both of these approaches are really skillful means for accomplishing the Buddha's advice when he said, not reviving the past, not hoping to be in the future. Instead, with insight, see each arising state, not craving after-past experience, not setting one's heart on future ones, not bound up with desire and craving." So we use all the different models of practice, all the different descriptions of practice, just for this end. It's such simple advice, not reviving the past not hoping to be in the future. See each arising state, not craving after past experience, not setting one's heart on future ones, even meditative ones, not bound up with desire and craving. The mind free of craving, free of this thirst for existence, thirst for becoming, free of even the desire for the next moment, disengages the gears of attachment, the gears of clinging, of wanting to become anything. Buddha Dasa, who was one of the great time masters of the last century, he summed this up beautifully, and it, it became a useful mantra for me in my practice. He said, nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. You can experience this mind of no craving as a great relief from this thirst for becoming that really has been driving us throughout samsara. It's this thirst which has kept us going and which keeps us going a thirst for becoming, for wanting to be. I want to read something, just a little passage by Paul Bowles, the writer who spent so much time in North Africa, and this is just his description of the experience of the Sahara Immediately when you arrive in the Sahara for the first time, or the tenth time, you notice the stillness. Then there is the sky, compared to which all other skies seem faint-hearted efforts. Solid and luminous, it is always the focal point of the landscape. Presently, you will either shiver and hurry back inside familiar walls, or you will go on standing there and let something very peculiar happen to you, something that everyone who lives there has undergone and what the French call the baptism of solitude. It is a unique sensation, and it has nothing to do with loneliness, for loneliness presupposes memory. Here in this holy mineral landscape, lighted by stars like flares. Even memory disappears. Nothing is left but your own breathing and the sound of your heart beating." So in some way, I think, we experience the inner Sahara, where we come back to that elemental nature of what's happening. So there's dependency in this world through the craving for sense pleasures, through the thirst or craving for continued existence. The dependency is also created by the third kind of craving, which is the thirst for non-existence. Somehow the sense that things are so bad if only I could not be. Maybe the experience this craving for non existence to some extent, you know, in some difficult sittings. If only it could not be, I could not be, or in difficult life situations. Bruce Chatwin, who is an Australian travel writer. He wrote this wonderful book about all the awful trips he took of just kind of the worst places he ended up and the most uncomfortable places. And the title of the book, which really appealed to me, was, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, and we can see that question arise so often, both in our meditation and in our lives. What am I doing here? In the course, the 1984 course with Saida Upandita when he first came to IMS, and you know, it was this very intense, difficult course, both Michelle McDonald and I, there were, it was a very difficult retreat and painful and a lot of, a lot of intensity. And afterwards we formed what we called the Duca Club. And our motto for this Duca Club was from the poet, I think it was Central American, I'm not sure, poet Dario, He has a line from one of his poems, Ode to be a stone with no feeling at all. (laughs) Because that was the sense of this dukkha club. It's just too bad. How can we not be here? But the problem with this, and here's where the subtlety of this kind of craving comes in, is that this kind of thirst for non-existence nourishes and is nourished by the view of self, that there's someone there not to be around, that there's a someone not to be reborn, that there's a someone who dies. It's all sustaining and nourishing this view of self. So a particular care is needed not only in the kind of ordinary times of desire for non-existence, but it's particularly important to understand this in those meditative states, and often they come as the practice deepens, where we feel intensely the dukkha of conditioned existence. I mean, this is part of our growing insight, where there's a strong desire for liberation because we are feeling the dukkha so immediately. There's one stage of insight called the urge for deliverance. So at that time, at that time in our practice, when we're feeling this so intensely, we need to be mindful of this desire and urge as another arising experience. Even as it's it's doing its work, of freeing us from attachment. So it's a powerful experience to have and yet we don't want to identify with it and create the sense of self as if there's a self that will be liberated. This is the more subtle kind of thirst for non-existence. The great discovery in practice is that on one level, birth and death, existence and non-existence, self and other, are the great defining themes of our lives. And on another level, we can see that all of it is just a display of empty appearances. Nothing is really going on at all. So this points to the other aspect, the second aspect of abiding independently, not clinging to anything in the world. We've talked about not being dependent through craving, through the three types of craving, for sense pleasures, for continued existence, for non-existence. The second aspect is not being dependent through views. In Pali, the word is ditti, which is most fundamentally the view of self. In our normal mode of perception, usually when we see or hear or smell or taste something, feel something in the body or cognize things through the mind, there immediately arises this felt sense of I, of mine. I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm feeling, I'm thinking. And then we further elaborate. I'm meditating. And then we further elaborate. I'm a good meditator or I'm a bad meditator. And we further elaborate. I'm a good person or I'm a bad person. And we create this whole superstructure of self on top of momentary changing conditions. This is dependence through view, where we are identifying with what's arising and creating this felt sense of I. In one short and powerfully liberating teaching, the Buddha pointed out the way to freedom from this dependence through the views of self. And it has to do with well the teaching the teaching happened. When this man came to him, he was an ascetic from another part of India. He had been shipwrecked he was a merchant, actually, who had been shipwrecked on the shore of India. He um, was in the southwest, and all his possessions were gone, and so he just started wearing uh, clothes of bark right, to cover himself. And people saw this man just covered in bark, and because ascetics at that time in India were highly venerated, you know, the people came and they saw this guy just covered with bark, and they thought that he was this you know, powerful ascetic. And so they just started worship, worshiping him and venerating him and bringing all kinds of gifts. And after a while, he started to maybe wonder, well, maybe I am really an you know, because people were treating him like one. So it said that he started wondering, you know, am I? Uh, and it said a deva who had been in a former life a, a relative of his, a deva who was living in some nearby grove of trees, came to him and said, uh, "Sorry, <laughs> you're not really an hunt, but there is one, you know, and it's actually across India. And referring to the Buddha, there is a fully awakened being. Uh, I suggest you go, you go see him." So this man, he was by this time quite sincere in his aspiration for freedom. And I don't know whether he went across India in his bark or he got some other clothing. But he ended up you know, making this journey and meeting the Buddha as the Buddha was actually going on his alms round for food. And the, the man's name was Bahia. And Bahia said, you know, please teach me. I really want to be free. And the Buddha said, well, wait, we're just, I'm standing in the middle of the road. Let's go back to the monastery when I finish my rounds and I'll teach you. Well, Bahia was very insistent. And I said, teach me now, something may happen to you, to me. So a second time, a third time. So finally the Buddha relented after the proverbial three requests. But the teaching had to be very succinct because there they were, standing just in the middle of the street. So he gave this teaching, the first part of which is very familiar. The second part is not so familiar because it's quite a convoluted polyconstruction. But as we deconstruct the meaning of it, it points to this place of real freedom of mind. So I want to read to you two translations. The first will be the convoluted one and the second will be one that begins to make some sense of it. So the first part of the teaching, the familiar part, the Buddha said to Bahia, when in the seen will be only what is seen and in the heard only what is heard, when in the sensed only what is sensed, and when in the known, only what is known. Okay, so this is the difficult translation. You will not be by that. When you are not by that, you will not be therein. When you are not therein, you will be neither here nor there or in between. This is the end of dukkha." Okay, so most of us in English <laughs> might be hard to find the end of dukkha in that. But Vimalo, who was a Pali scholar, he kind of translated it in a way that begins to make sense of it. He said, And repeating the first part, when in the seen will be only what is seen, in the heard only what is heard, in the sensed only what is sensed, in the known only what is known, then you will not be influenced by that, meaning you will not be carried away by craving. If you are not influenced by it, you are not bound to it. That is not creating a sense of self. When you are not bound to it, you, meaning the self, will neither be here, which means in the sense bases, the self will not be in the sense bases, nor there, in the sense objects, nor in between, which is consciousness. This is the end of dukkha. This is a powerful deconstruction of self and how to accomplish it. When in the seen, just the seen, in the heard, just the heard, in the sensed, just the sensed, in the cognized through the mind, just the cognized, then you will not be influenced by what arises, not carried away by craving. If you are not influenced, not carried away, you are not bound to it, bound to it by view of self. We don't create the sense of I. When you are not bound to it, then we will neither be here, creating the I in the sense basis, nor there, not creating the I in the sense objects, nor in between, not creating the I in consciousness. This is the end of dukkha. So with this quality of bare knowing, of whatever is seen, heard, felt, or cognized, we are not evaluating, we are not proliferating around these basic sense impressions. And when we practice in this way, we live as the Buddha instructed in the Sutta, We live abiding, independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is the end of suffering. So let's sit for a few minutes. In the scene just the scene in the heard just the heard in the sense just the sense in the known just the known. of sharing and aspiration. Through
1: the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Forest Refuge on May 17, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed audience.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.